From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Shuradon. This is Playback Daily. I don't know really any woman, irrespective of how of what she actually looks like, who's just like, yeah, I'm 100% like confident and comfortable in my looks. I don't know if the politicians remember Erteller or, or whatever, but it was quite state-of-the-art, wasn't it, when you think of it? So how do you promote it? Go on. Uh, I I haven't promoted it that much, really. This is my my first time trying trying to promote it. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, just what is the best reality dating show on TV? When is it graffiti and when is it art? And yes, Airtel is still going, but not for long. That's all in the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's more graffiti than art. The redoubtable Kira King has landed in the rotating presenter's chair of the 9 o'clock show this week. And while the presenter's voice may change, one thing remains the same in this slot, and that's the musings on the news. This morning, Kira drew our attention to the perils of AI for Hollywood stars. This is a headline that I think we're going to see more frequently going forward. But the Hollywood actor Tom Hanks has come out to say that it has nothing to do with an artificial intelligence version of himself that is promoting a dental plan. Um, Obviously, he had to take to his Instagram and confirm that it wasn't him. And as I said, this is a headline that we're probably going to see daily going forward because of the progression of AI. So here's Tom Hanks talking to the Adam Buxton podcast earlier this year about what his thoughts are on the future of his image. Anybody can now recreate themselves at any age they are by way of AI. Because look, you know, I could be hit by a bus tomorrow and that's it. But my performances can go on and on and on and on and on. And outside of the understanding that has been done with AI or deep fake, there'll be nothing to tell you that it's not me. And it's going to have some degree of of lifelike quality. That's certainly an artistic challenge, but it's also a legal one. Without a doubt, people will be able to tell But the question is, will they care? AI, deepfake, anything will be able to lie just as well as they can go ahead and be able to tell the truth. And uh, there are going to be some people that are going to make put huge stake in what is authentic and what is not, just as there is going to be a a ton of people that ain't going to care. Yeah, well, I hope I hope that people do care, uh, because even earlier this month, Keira Knightley has revealed that she's making plans to copyright her face. And Keira Knightley is the actress. She's in the Chanel ads. Um, And of course, she's making plans to copyright her face again because of fears that technology could steal her likeness in the future. And she has said that AI has the potential to be catastrophic and she hopes that governments come in and regulate it. And it is a massive worry for people in terms of being targets of deep fake technology, which can use you know, people's voices and likeness for everything from advertisements to pornography to sham songs. Um, I was scrolling through my phone one day and I came across Johnny Cash singing a Britney Spears song. Now, it never happened in real life, but somebody obviously had done an awful lot of work to, you know, generate Johnny Cash's voice to to play, to sing this particular song. I love Johnny Cash. I also love Britney Spears, but I didn't need to hear Johnny Cash singing a Britney Spears song, if you know what I'm trying to say. Anyway. Yeah, I didn't mean to freak everyone out about AI technology, but um, it just seems to be in the headlines, you know, every morning, you know, when you wake up, it's, it, there's something else, you know, going on with AI. AI selling us Tom Hanks selling toothpaste to the presumably unintentional harm being done to the famed statue of Phil Linnett off Dublin's Grafton Street. Now, I woke up today um, and I was reading an article about Phil Linnett, whom I love. And obviously a lot of us are familiar with the Phil Linnett statue. 
Um, it's just off Grafton Street. It's near Brookcells there. And the fill-in statue, it needs repairs after being damaged by fans' plectrums. Now, the actual statue itself, it's survived, been knocked over by vandals. It's been accidentally, I think, knocked down by motorists. But now it has been damaged by enthusiastic fans who are leaving tributes. And the council have said that a foundry is going to strengthen the wells. And I think that's on the string of the actual Qatar. The cost of that is 1875 And if you do look at the Qatar um uh, so it's not actually uh, Phil Innes himself it's the guitar and fans uh, you know have left plectrums in between the strings of the guitar and you know it is a nice gesture um, I think to leave a plectrum especially if you're a huge fan of an artist that has passed or an actor that has passed you know or whatnot. musicians themselves you know famous musicians have travelled if they if they are in Dublin they've gone to visit the, the Phil Innes statue Droid Bishop he's an electronic music artist he posted a video on his Instagram where he'd left a plectrum and so did William Duval who is the lead singer of Alice in Chains um, and he left a plectrum as well so I understand it and, you know, I suppose tourism as well, tourism body has promoted as well. They said anything Lizzie or Phil Innett fan worth their salt needs to seek out this bronze statue, take a photo with them and leave a plectrum in his base. As I said, I do think it's a lovely idea. But now, unfortunately, the statue needs repairs, It's you know, after it's been damaged. And I actually recently watched a documentary on Oscar Wilde. And they've had to put up like this large kind of glass sheath around his grave in Paris. Um, because the thing to do at Oscar Wilde's grave was to, to you know, wear lipstick and then kiss his grave. But the grave was getting damaged. So they had to put a glass sheath around it. Um, so I don't, know, I don't know what the answer is. I think fans are still going to go and they're going to pay tribute to artists that they love. But I guess everyone just needs to be a little bit more careful. The evils of plectrums. Or is it plectra? Damaging our fellow statue. And next, the stock market flotation that's got Kira excited. I kind of love this. This is just proof that if you wait long enough, everything will eventually become fashionable because here's the headline. Birkenstock set to float on stock market with valuation of nearly 10 billion. So the German sandal maker has come a long way. Um, You know, I think it was founded in 1774 and it was a maker of orthopaedic shoes. So maybe not the the sexiest of shoes, Um, but they were brought to the United States as well in the 1960s. The sandals were kind of adopted by hippies who who took to their no frills comfort and claimed their uh, utilitarian look as as an anti-fashion badge. But then, of course, like everything, they became fashionable. And I think it was the supermodel, Kate Moss, she wore them for a fashion shoot in the 90s and they were propelled into stardom. And uh, over the last couple of years, the German brand has seen a resurgence because they're now a favourite among celebrities and influencers with fans including Kendall Jenner, Gigi Hadid and Sienna Miller. And one of its brands, I think, was featured in the Barbie movie earlier this year with Margot Robbie. She was seen wearing a pair of pink Birkenstock. And last year, this is, I suppose maybe I'm not surprised, last year they were one of the UK's most purchased fashion items so there you go they are on the stock market with the, on the stock market with a valuation of nearly 10 billion invest 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 no don't 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 in fact never take financial advice from a radio catch up show it's the equivalent of deciding that the door to door guy who wants to sign you up to a new utility can perform your root canal and save you a few euro not wise anyway Finally, on the nine o'clock show Musings on the News, Kira raises a glass for what was once an essential service. 
I'm going to admit that I thought that this service was already closed, but RTE is set to close um, its Airtel service next week. So Airtel was launched in 1987 and it's going to close on October 12th, which is next Thursday. It's been 36 years in operation. Um, and obviously there's been a big reaction to Twitter. There's been a big reaction on Twitter to the news that Airtel is to close. Uh, people are remembering the place that it had in their lives, you know, before the internet. So Buzz O'Neill Maxwell, he recalls the importance of page 222 for getting the results. And on Twitter, he says, actually ringing home from abroad and asking your dad to check page 222, RIP Airtel. Um, and then Gav Riley, um, he says the same on Twitter. He says, he says, RIP, big guy, raise a glass to page 222. The sports commentator, Oshin Langan, he used it for work. Airtel bridged a long technology gap between carrier pigeons and the internet. And before mobile coverage became ubiquitous and the advent of social media, I spent many Sunday evening waiting for results to update so I could record my late evening sports bulletin on WLR. Um, it was a hub for politics nerds as well. Councillor for RD, John Sheridan, he was hooked from an early age. Um, he says on Twitter, my earliest memory of being a political numbers nerd was a Sunday morning of the 1997 Irish general election going on to Airtel to see the overnight final counts of the loud constituency. Those elected in yellow, eliminated in red, and I had just turned 10 years of age. Uh, James Rafferty says on Twitter, as well. It was a game changer for anyone doing the airport pickup. He said, I'm not sure my dad was ever happier than the day flight info came to Airtel. He lived near the airport and we were always collecting arriving families. So no more waiting in the terminal. All he had to do was sit on the couch until Airtel said landed and then he'd head to the airport. That was absolutely magic. But honestly, I think that Mike McLaughlin wins this for me. Mike McLaughlin says, petitioning Bono to get Airtel displayed on the spear before it's shut down. And he has helpfully posted a very professional Photoshop job to show how it might look. And it's absolutely stunning, as you'd expect. If anyone has seen the images of the spear in Las Vegas, where you two performed on Friday night. Well, it is, it's the Airtel, it's the whole, it's map of Ireland with Airtel written um, across it and obviously you know done in, in a spear like a spear like shape um, should I say so good fun RIP Airtel as everyone is saying Ní vega and there's more on Airtel later in this edition of Playback Daily but for now that's it for the musings on the news from this morning's 9 o'clock show Your mum my dad the UK reality dating series ended recently and this morning Claire Byrne spoke to Tanya Sweeney, Irish independent columnist, about the best reality dating shows on TV. She started the item with a clip from Your Mum, My Dad. So you know we said that we wanted you to be involved in your parents' time in the retreat. Yeah. 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 Well, we want you to be really involved. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Welcome to the surveillance room. Oh, Stop! That's my chance! No way. I'm worried because I know I'm going to cringe. Like, I love her, but I know my mum's going to do something that's going to cringe me out. So Davina McCall presenting there and the premise of that show was a bunch of middle-aged single parents trying to find love unknowingly under the watchful eyes of their children. Well, the show garnered critical acclaim and captured viewers' hearts. But what makes a really special dating show and what are the best ones of all? Well, I'm joined by Irish independent columnist Tanya Sweeney. Your mum, my dad, um, yeah. I, um, as I said, it was heaped with praise, lots of critical acclaim. What was it about the series that you mm-hmm. liked? 
the thing about uh, my mum, your dad, was that it was just, you know, these are people who have just, you know, um, lived life, you know, there's a bit of wisdom, they know what they want in relationships. And I think that, as a viewer, is probably a lot more kind of satisfying to watch, you know, instead of, you know, um, a couple of 25-year-olds who are extremely hot and it's a foregone conclusion that they're going to fancy each other and they're trying to kind of, you know, um, wade around in this little puddle looking for some common ground, you know. It's definitely a lot more interesting when, mm-hmm. when someone's just had life. And, you know, the thing about the, the contestants in My Mum, Your Dad is, you know, they've been in relationships. I mean, the, there was a kind of a breakout star, Roger, who is a, a widower, you know. He got talking about, you know, the loss of his wife and, you know, bringing up his daughter. I mean, it was all, like, incredibly affecting, you know, for, for a dating show, let's be honest. Well, you've skirted around Love Island now, but we're going to take it on. And I know it has its <laughs> issues, you know, people who are looking for other people who look after themselves, as you, as you mm. so put it so well. But it still does very well, doesn't it? I mean, people still well, flock to that show. Well, sure, look, I mean, here's my sense of it is, right? I mean, Love Island to me is a real Trojan horse into some, you know, very, very interesting conversations about things like gaslighting, toxic masculinity. And it it also kind of shows you whether you, you know, are actively on, you know, Bumble or whether you've had no need to go dating for decades. You know, you can look at something like Love Island and go, oh, my God, dating is absolutely bananas these days, isn't it? And you can kind of watch it, you know, and just and just look at the kind of mating rituals and, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I mean, the, the contestants on Love Island, they do have a bit of a an eye on their five minutes of fame and their, their you know, boohoo brand ambassadorship, yeah. you know. But I like to think, you know, in my heart of hearts, I mean, I know I'm a cynical person, but, you know, I like to think that they are there, you know, most of the time to, to, to kind of, you know, meet somebody and, and to, to really, you know, find someone that they're attracted to, you know. Are they there to find their, their husband otherwise? Probably not, you mm-hmm. know, but... Uh, I mean, that's that's what I'm taking into it whenever I watch something well, like that. That there is for, hope, or, you know, a romance at least. Well, you know? for some of the characters in Love Island, the five minutes of fame is extended long beyond that. Let's take a listen to this and then talk about the people involved. I do feel like me and Tommy have a connection. Okay. And like, I want to pursue that and okay. see where it goes. But like, I, okay. I, I understand what you're saying. Like, you do like him, but... I'm in here as well to find someone. Do you, yeah, know, what I, do you know what I mean? Do you like, feel like maybe, just a suggestion, that you should have pulled Molly aside and just said no. that immediately? No. I'm sorry, but I don't need to ask Molly May's permission to crack on with Tommy Fury. Is she joking? Maura Higgins there. We know who won that one. Oh, Molly May. Icon. <laughs> Oh my God! I, do you know what? I really would love to go for a drink with Maura Higgins. You know, I just, I just think she's just brilliant. You know, I think everyone um, and would. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and 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 Tommy Fury and Molly May, um, soon to be Fury. I mean, they have really captured the influencer market. I, I kind of stand agog watching it how they've managed to parlay their time on Love Island into these absolutely humongous influencer careers. You know, I mean, I watched um, Molly May and Tommy's uh, proposal, wedding proposal or marriage proposal video. I mean, you wouldn't be getting it out of Warner Brothers in Hollywood. It was insanely, you know, lavish and expensive and, you know, very, very um, elaborate yeah, and for, they, for, for they, reality TV, you know. They feature as well in Tommy's brother's Netflix programme. I don't know if you've watched that, Tanya, the Tyson Fury one. Um, I the became, Tyson Fury one, yeah, I became engrossed in that. They're very much... And then <laughs> yesterday on my own social media feed... Molly May was trying to sell me an office coffee machine. So she has her fingers in every pie. And you know what? And so 
fair play to her. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think it's fantastic. Did you buy the coffee machine? No, no, no. I have no need for a coffee machine, a Molly May coffee, or any other coffee machine at the moment. Oh, but, it's a Molly know. May coffee machine. Wow. Is, yeah, Consider me intrigued. Listen, let's, oh, I tell you. let's co- we'll, we'll come back to the dating shows now because some yeah. of them build themselves, don't they, Tanya, as social experiments. So we're all supposed to learn something. Oh, no. Th- that brings yeah, us to Married at First Sight and Love is Blind. Mm. So married at first sight, yes, I mean, the social experiment is one of those words, those watchwords that reality TV uses when they're going to do something completely weird to their um, to their contestants, you know, and they just say, we're doing this, you know, as anthropologists, really. So married at first sight um, is a situation where people will go up the aisle uh, without having seen their soon-to-be husband or wife, and they will go through the rigmarole of a wedding, you know, their families are there, their friends are there, they're all dressed up in the dress. And they literally walk up the aisle to a complete and utter stranger they've never clapped eyes on in their life. And they exchange vows and they go, go on honeymoons and all the rest of it. Now, as viewers, you're watching that through your fingers going, oh, my God, because there are situations where they will take a look at their groom and go, oh, yes, love a bit of that. Or they will take one look, as, as, as people tend to do when they're dating. You know, they make that 30 second summation go, no, not interested. And, you know. There have been contestants on Married at First Sight that are just like, oh my God, gross. And they still go ahead with the marriage. <laughs> uh, I mean, like televisual gold, you know. Well, I have a, a little sample of that now. This is from the sixth season of the Australian series of Married at First Sight. So Ines and Bronson's oh. marriage gets off to a rocky start. So don't like piercings? No, I don't like piercings. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the only one. The eyebrow ring, like it's so disgusting. They're so 90s boy bands, they're done. Why do you like piercings? I've been that since How I was old are you? 18, it's not coming out. So you're 18 years old? No, when I got that, yeah. How old are you now? 34. So why the f do you have a piercing? No, uh, because I like them, it's not going to come out. Oh my God. I know, I know. They always say chihuahuas have the biggest bite. She's bold and pig headed, and she knows what she likes, so I think it's a great thing. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting to know her. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be them, but I definitely would watch that. You know, 100%. Um, first Poor dates Ned. is your... I mean, just want to move on to first dates before we come to news, because yeah. this is important. First mm. dates, the Irish version, and we're being a little bit yeah. biased here maybe, but it's so much better than the UK version. Why is that? I tend to prefer all of the Irish reality shows and especially the Irish dating shows, you know. I mean, even Graw, Iron Traw and Love in the Country have, have turned out to be actually so much better than anything that they're doing in the UK or Australia and Ireland. And First Dates Ireland, it's just, it's got people who are there for the crack. They're not really there with their eye on kind of the five minutes of fame afterwards, you know, that kind of way. They're really there because they either want to have a couple of drinks for free or they want to just meet somebody and have you know, a bit of fun. And I think that always bodes really, really well in reality TV. Reality TV judged and found, at least partially wanting, by Irish independent columnist Tanya Sweeney on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. Yo Nesbo's books have, Ray Darcy tells us, sold more than 55 million copies and been translated into 50 languages. But for his latest book, the Norwegian superstar crime writer has given his most famous creation, Detective Harry Holey, a rest. Or maybe he's taken a rest from Harry, as he told Ray. I guess I give myself uh, a holiday off or time off from Harry. We all need time off from Harry. He's, uh, he's a very intense guy, so um, it's good to to do something else in between. So, so this, is, this is a horror novel. That's, it'll be in that mm. genre, won't it? I think so. Yeah. Um, you know, it's um, 
it's sort of difficult to talk too much about genres here because it's sort of um, a spoiler to give yes. away yeah, what, yeah, yeah. what genre it is. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's odd because uh, it's I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and we can't talk too much about the book. Yo, you should have thought about that when you were writing it. Because, true, true. Yeah. yeah. So how do you promote it? Go on. Uh, I I haven't promoted it that much, really. This is my my first time trying trying to promote it. I should have come up with a with, with a catchy um, sort of introduction to the to the book. But um, I think that it it start off as uh, something that you. Um, might be a, a bit similar to Stephen King. It's mm-hmm. it it has that something between Stephen King and uh, the TV series Stranger Things. Mm. I, I I think and 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 then you might expect that okay, so that's the kind of novel it is. It's probably going to continue like that. Um, that is not what is going to happen. Something else is going to happen. Yeah. So it, it, there are three parts to it. I can tell people that. Um, mm. uh, and actually, when I started reading it, the, the first thing I've I've an interest in mental health, and the first thing that came to my head was schizophrenia, and, and that mm. features in the book. Yeah. Um, and, and and just about that, when you write a book like that, and you're dealing with something like schizophrenia, and particularly in relation to schizophrenia and crime, how much mm. reading do you have to do about that topic? Um, quite a lot. Um, I mean, it's. Um, uh, in order to get the right feel for it, mm. the, in order to make what you're writing about feel authentic, um, you have to know more than what's in the text. Um, you can't be that uh, superficial that you only, you know, scratch the surface of, uh, of, of your material. But on the other hand, it's, um, it's also about um, your imagination. Uh, it is it, not. I'm. I'm not writing. You know, non-fiction about uh, schizophrenia. Um, I'm. I'm. I'm writing fiction. So I'm also using schizophrenia for for my purpose. It, it needs to be there in the story. Um, and it's 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 misunderstood, isn't it, by a lot of people? Schizophrenia. Well, I I think. When I grew up, it, uh, it was the split mind, mm. and 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 in a way that is, I think, the Greek translation of the word uh, means uh, uh, split mind. So so there's no wonder there's a uh, there's a confusion. But it's not about multiple personalities, uh, which was you know the way it was interpreted in the 70s and 80s. It's sort of a um, an expression that covers many diseases and mental disorders, uh, and 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 probably in fifty years' time, maybe we'll no longer use the word uh, schizophrenia because we have, you know, figured out a couple of things and and have have uh, more detailed information about yes. what it covers. Yeah, and there's a big link between trauma and schizophrenia. You were talking about your imagination. Um, and <laughs> so, so do you ever wonder when you look at your books and reread your books and, and, and the themes, people might ask, what sort of brain comes up with those sort of themes and those books? Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, um, how do you answer well, yourself? Actually, you know, actually, I, um, I I did a test a few years ago um, together with another writer and a sort of psychological test mm. uh, with the f- so-called five big, which is a serious, um, you know, test. And uh, in my case, it came out quite boring. I, I, I scored in the middle range uh, in every aspect except one which is uh, imagination and fantasy. I was a scared kid. I was scared of the dark. And I guess that is how I developed uh, many of the stories I would tell and write as a kid. And I I brought that with me uh, into adulthood. It's a release valve for you then, in a way. Um, you know, for people, for imagine if you didn't have the release of writing books. Yeah. I don't know. Um, mm. You know, I, I I can easily imagine myself going through life without writing in anything. Uh, but I would definitely, you know, go through life coming up with my stories, creating fantasies in my mind. I mean, I did that as a kid. Um, you know, probably when we drove for summer holidays to my grandparents and me and my brother sitting in the in in the back seat, and I would just stare out the window. A, and come up with stories after stories in my head, not telling anyone, but just, you know, writing three novels before we got to my <laughs> grandparents. Your dad was a great storyteller as well. And mm. I wonder, is there a gene for it or is it just the environment you're brought up in? I don't know. I, uh, maybe it's both. Um, mm. I remember as a songwriter, um, I remember there was a, a guy who came up to me and said, that, how can you come up with a song? How can you start with nothing and write a song? How is that even possible? And and and, and I was surprised. I said, "How can you sit down with a guitar and even you know just test the guitar and not come up with something that could be a song?" Uh, I mean, your mind just starts creating things. Doesn't that happen automatically? And seemingly, uh, it doesn't. No. For, for most people. Yeah. So, including the children's books, it's touching 30 books now, is it? Or yeah, the, the Dr. Proctor's Fart Powder books were big in our house. Was that just a break from from the adult stuff or was it always something you wanted to do? Um, it's kind of obvious. I had a daughter and I uh-huh. had to write a book for right. her. And, yes. <laughs> and actually it was um, she who came up with the characters. Um, I would be her jukebox when it came to stories. Instead of feeding it coins, she would feed it characters. Ah. Uh, dad come up with a story with a little girl, a little princess and a, and a boy and a crazy professor and a dinosaur and a potato. And mean twins. Like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, 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 and so I would, um, that uh, summer I came up with Dr. Proctor and mm. I, I realized that, okay, maybe this is a, this is a book. And so I wrote a book and uh, actually uh, some years ago when she heard me during an interview and I said that she had came up with the characters. Uh, next time we met, she said that, Dad, you know, <laughs> what about royalties? <laughs> yeah. Royalties. The indefatigable Yo Nesbo talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon about his new book, The Night House, which is published by Harville Secker. Author, academic and broadcaster Emma Dabaris joined Kira King this morning to talk about her new book, Disobedient Bodies. Another thing that stood out to me at the start of the book is this one line and you said, we are obsessed with our appearances, but not many of us like the way we look. There's something really kind of 
sad. I think, you know what I mean? About a line like that. Yeah, um, because I, I thought how much emphasis, like specifically women, you know, how much emphasis is placed on our appearance, on our physical appearance, on the visual, how much overemphasis, how much we think about it, how much time and energy we invest in our appearances. But then who is really kind of happy with the results? Like, I don't know really any woman irrespective of how of what she actually looks like who's just like yeah I'm a hundred percent like confident and comfortable in my looks I'm Mm -hmm. not saying that person doesn't exist there's probably like the odd person but it's very rare yeah no it is and obviously your latest book that we're here to talk about today Disobedient Bodies this evolved from the Instagram account that you set up of the same name can you explain the premise of the title and I guess what you're hoping people might take from this Yeah, so basically, um, after I had my second son, who's uh, almost four now, um, my, I feel like after I had my first, my first son, my body kind of like went back to how it had looked previously, like more easily, (laughs) like more Mm -hmm. quickly. And then like with my second son, like that wasn't, that wasn't the case. And rather than kind of freaking out about it, like as I probably would have done at like an earlier stage of my life, I was just like, I'm going to kind of just lean into this. I'm going to kind of like embrace it. I'm also going to like, like doc- document it and kind of like, like put, like kind of share pictures of kind of postpartum and what 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 I look like currently. And also part of me was quite excited, like, the novelty actually of kind of being curvier and like having boobs and stuff was like um I'm quite flat chested mm-hmm. I was um was I was you know I was just like this is actually this is interesting and I just kind of want to like lean into it and like kind of like sit with sit with the discomfort like something I write about in the book is I often like for me personally I get to places of greater like insight and confidence in my body and my appearance after I've kind of pushed myself to do things that I'm initially uncomfortable with um so anything from like you know stopping straightening my hair to like not shaving to um the way my body like changed after the birth of my second son and if I kind of push through the discomfort I often get to like a place of like yeah deeper insight and 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 confidence mm-hmm. i guess so the idea of disobedience as well was i was reading like well i've been reading like a lot of feminist you know kind of theory and critical theory and philosophy there's a lot of philosophy in the book my phd is in sociology but um in doing that i've i've read a lot of philosophy and i was really interested in this yeah this idea of disobedience and something that i had read in uh, naomi wolf's um kind of seminal 90s like feminist text uh the beauty myth about um the pressure on women to be incredibly thin isn't really about the way women look but it's more about women's obedience and having women kind of uh thinking occupying so much of their headspace with this desire to be thin and also kind of like what not eating enough like the actual impact that can have um, on on your thinking and how a starving population is kind of a malleable population and how this is all about making women more obedient. Mm-hmm. And so I was just really fascinated by the idea of disobedience and kind of like world politics of rejecting that and being 
quote unquote disobedient would look like. So that's kind of like the thinking mm. behind it. And just to kind of hark back to the fact that we grew up in 90s Ireland and this was something yeah. I didn't even really understand it at the time. I mean, I had a general concept of it, but we really grew up in the dawn of heroin chic. That was the term for it. Yeah. Um, and obviously at the time, again, I didn't really comprehend it. Now I look back and I go, oh, my God, you know, and I think that Kate Moss was the face of that movement, whether she liked to be um, the face of that movement or not. And I think we were kind of saved then by the Spice Girls in a little way, if you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, I certainly growing up, like didn't particularly see the Spice Girls <laughs> as like, by the time they came out, I was really into, like, techno. I was not looking... Well, you were to, never like, going to love the Spice Girls then, <laughs> if you're into your techno. Yeah, so they, they weren't really, like, my role models for empowerment, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I know they were important. I know they were important to people. Yeah. And I guess what they did what they did do was they had... More, I mean, to be fair, they're all very slim. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't that same unachievably skinny heroin chic look they're slim but they had more kind of like ordinary bodies to a degree like do you know what I mean um but yeah I don't know that I, I even think the thing in Ireland kind of like it definitely dovetailed like with heroin chic but I don't think that was really I think it's something that predates that that 90s heroin chic look kind of like exacerbated it but I think it's something outside of that because that was like a bit of a kind of bohemian kind of like scruffy rock and roll look yeah. and the, the beauty standard that was like dominant when I was growing up was a far more kind of I don't know like polished and um even though when I think back to like the state <laughs> the state of our makeup it wasn't that polished but I it mean it was really like not what, polished <laughs> <laughs> but that's what we were that's what we were going for like rather than kind of like uh that kind of scruffier look mm -hmm. um but yeah yeah, look, your attitude, and I know, look, I feel the same way myself. Your attitude, your own body has changed as you've gotten older. And what was it like when you were in your 20s? Can you tell us about that battle and the impact that, you know, that it had on you? Oh, in my 20s, it was really bad. I, get, I feel like the pressure was mounting probably from like childhood and my teens. But then by my 20s, I actually like got, I actually achieved being really skinny. So it was about like maintaining that through... I would say like an obsession with food and like very what we would now call disordered eating mm -hmm. um and just so I write in the book about um so I, I talk about like different parts different places different cultures that I've been in and how they have you know kind of different beauty standards but one of the things that I'm doing with the book is not just to say uh, oh we just need to change our beauty standard but it's actually looking at like the standardization of beauty and how it is that we like measure and assess what beauty is and I go into like quite like you know kind of philosophical kind of questions with that so I'm not saying that we just replace one beauty standard with another one because even though I've been in places where I very much like conform to the beauty standard and ones where I'm seen as far from the beauty standard but any beauty standard that exists only exists to the exclusion of somebody else so even if you're, you know, in a kind of pole position in it, it means somebody else isn't. So I don't think it's about replacing one beauty standard with another, mm -hmm. but it's actually like about kind of the transformation of the whole system. Emma Dabbery talking to Kira King this morning about her new book, Disobedient Bodies, which is published by Welcome Collection.
Local authorities spend thousands of euro every year removing graffiti. For example, Dublin City Council spends €450,000 a year just on graffiti removal. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, reporter Brian O'Connell told Claire about some interesting initiatives in the fight against graffiti. Well, Cork City Council pretty much does it itself with their own staff, but but they're also supported by the probation service, which I thought was quite interesting. So working with the probation services, they keep costs down. So in the last 12 months in Cork City, just €5,000 spent on graffiti removal. Limerick then, they spend about 11000 a year. So, for example, um, Limerick City and County Council this year, 2500 I think, on graffiti removal as well. So the average per year is about 11000 And again, uh, they have been very good in using street art as a way to discourage graffiti. So, for example, uh, the street art will allow street artists to take over a blank canvas and then to use that. There was a bridge recently in the Childers Road area and that was blighted with graffiti over the last few years. So they essentially have put an art installation and a project in place there and that has reduced the amount of illegal graffiti. So this art installation idea I know piqued your interest and you went to Limerick to see it firsthand. I thought it was really interesting because obviously uh, some people would say the issue of graffiti has reduced in Limerick and I wanted to look at whether urban areas could learn from Limerick a little bit so I did speak to a former illegal graffiti artist, we'll get to him but first I met with Catherine O'Holloran, she's founder of Draw Out which is an urban art project and they would be focused on regenerating uh, areas of Limerick she's also MD of Limerick City Bill they'd provide education and training and Catherine told me why she got involved in graffiti. There was a group of young people who were illegally tagging some of the kind of municipal buildings in the city, which was a big kind of deal for the councillor and how would they tackle that. I was in youth work at the time and had kind of started using art and setting up little studios to work with kids in the communities. And so I had um, the idea of maybe taking on that kind of you know, the efforts to see what could we do in terms of diversion, harnessing the creative impulse and directing it in a way where they felt like they still had a legitimacy around how they expressed it that wasn't contained too much, you know. And it's a mind change because it's changing from seeing graffiti as an act of destruction to an act of artistic expression. Exactly. So, I mean, that's all my work is about, is about trying to understand what is the drive What is the driver underneath the impulse? What is the young person trying to say? What are they trying to tell us? What are they trying to communicate? And if we can tap into that deeper piece, we can facilitate that in a way that isn't destructive to themselves or to society. The other thing was creating festivals whereby, you know, you could celebrate and and introduce this uh, art medium to the kind of wider public. What impact did that have then on graffiti in Limerick? It kind of just really the quieted the whole uh, issue. It's a different approach and it's an approach that's tried and tested around the world that works. It's an approach that can terrify local authorities because you're saying uh, let's invest in the very people that, you know, are kind of maybe damaging or defacing, you know, on properties. But really, unless we start like kind of listening to what our young people are trying to tell us like we're we're always going to be at odds with them 
And you went on then, as you said, Brian, to speak to a former illegal graffiti artist. Yes, not far from the courthouse in Limerick, where in previous years, uh, graffiti artists might have been fined. There's a large mural on the gable end of a building and the man behind it was a former illegal graffiti artist. He now works with the council and, and others and helping to, to harness that creative energy, which Catherine talked about behind graffiti. So his name is Cormac Dillon. He's a street artist and he's a cultural producer. And Cormac told me about his past, firstly, as an illegal graffiti artist artist. So we're standing opposite St Mary's Cathedral in Limerick and uh, we're looking at a mural myself and Jonathan Noonan uh, collaborated on creating that was commissioned by the Limerick City and County Council. So it's essentially the gable end of a house here and the whole gable end is now an art project. Yeah. Now in a past life you were one of these fellows who was the bane of the council's life in illegal graffiti. Yes, in a past life. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so when I was younger, come, coming up, um, like a lot of my friends that were artists and that are street artists now, would all come from a graffiti art or what we would uh, label ourselves as writers. It was how we grew up. So Where did that impulse for you come from? Impulse for me personally was um, it kind of got into it and then it was just the constant seeing and improvement of yourself as an individual in this capacity of writing and then also being able to visually see your stamp but everybody wants to find who they are and what place in the situation of this world that we live in and exist in and so there are people that do go out and purely just for vandalism but there are people that specifically go out for writing that like you know hand styles or bombing tagging is all graffiti art it's an interesting question <laughs> Personally, I, I would appreciate all graffiti and tagging, but I wouldn't call it all art then in the same sense, because there are people that do go out just purely to damage. And you wouldn't um, appreciate it if it was done to the front of your house. No, exactly. And there are, because within some sects of um, subcultures of graffiti, there are basic rules like, you know, no personal property, no cars, no stuff like this. Like, good art causes a fuss, you know, good art has, uh, causes a conversation and that's what we want. We don't want art that sits into our our, um, our you know, urban landscape that will sit there and not cause a fuss or not say something. It needs something. to be provocative. It needs to be provocative because yeah. that's what true art so is. So if you're going to give over that public space, you need to be prepared for what might come back at yeah, you. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's a, maybe an understanding and engagement with communities as well. So how can we, how can we as a culture uh, start educating ourselves and like how can the councils use these opportunities to educate ourselves around alternative narratives within our landscape? And, and that's okay, like, you know, it's okay to have counterpoints and counter um, narratives. Street artist Cormac Dillon talking to Brian O'Connell on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. As we heard earlier from Kira King on the 9 o'clock show, RTE's teletext service Airtel is closing on the 12th of October. Wait, Airtel is still going? Yes, yes it is. And on this afternoon's live line, Katie Hannan, herself one of the first crop of journalists to work on the service, poured one out for the internet before the internet. And there was no shortage of listeners waiting to recount their experiences of Airtel. One of the first people Katie spoke to on the line was Kate Kavanagh. I have to tell people, Kate, you were my very first boss. I was, I was. So, Kate, take us back, because you were in at the very, 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 very beginning. I was, I was. There wasn't even a computer in the room when I arrived. And I can tell you exactly when it was. It wasn't quite 40 years, because Sam, my son, was eight months old when I started. And getting the job in Airtel or in RTE uh, stopped me going to New York. So it kind of changed my life in that way. But um, it was, there were no even computers. The guy was still painting the walls when I arrived. So, 
So the computers arrived. And do you remember New Star? New I, Star was arriving in the newsroom. I have just so put, whole, I've just tweeted a photograph, Kate, of myself no. and the uh, then assistant editor Eamon Farrell, Eamon, uh, myself yeah. and Eamon at the at our new star, about to dump over Brilliant. onto the onto the uh, Airtel the computer. Yeah. yeah, 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 that was great. That it, was great. It was, but go no. back. What was the th- the thinking behind it? Because I mean, it was really revolutionary in terms of how we were communicating news and the idea that well, you wouldn't have to wait yeah. for the hour for to get an update on the news. Absolutely, absolutely, and very quickly, the technology for Airtel it was. Um, uh, it was developed by CFAX and the BBC and initially, very quickly, it was developed for subtitles for the hard of hearing, for the deaf and hard of hearing. And then, uh, I won't go into the lines, but I actually know, know the thing, uh, they developed it even further and then they could have all this text on screen. So CFAX and what was then Oracle were ahead of RTE and then RTE started and the whole... The whole idea is that you could. I mean, it definitely was, I, I called it earlier on today, the instant whip of the media world. And we broke the stories before before you had to wait for the bulletin. Which I, is really I remember. Hard to imagine now. I remember, Kate. Though there was some consternation on a couple of occasions uh, when, we, <laughs> when when we broke the story, and there was some, some people came racing down from the newsroom to say there was, there was. I was hauled into it with the head of news a couple of times, saying I was breaking embargoes. And I kind of had to say, well, actually, RTE is breaking the news in, you know, just the umbrella of RTE. And we're under that umbrella. So I had to defend Airtel on many occasions about embargoes and stuff. Like the idea, at the time, there was an embargo on a news item that you couldn't put it out until maybe five o'clock this evening. The idea of even that is strange with the with the way we tweet and Twitter and all of that. Now. But, uh, but Airtel was first to <clears throat> not break the embargo, but break the news. So I like to think of it as the first with the news rather than breaking any embargo. And Broke the mould. Like a lot of it, obviously a lot of the work we were doing was we were taking uh, stories from news reporters and from the wires and, yes, uh, yes. you know, putting them back out in, in a short and sub-edited form. Very but, short, it was a skill. But, but the outside broadcasts that we did, Kate, that, was, that Airtel did in terms of <laughs> the Eurovision was a big one for us. Your vision was amazing, but you and I had a couple of great ones as well. I probably won't tell all the stories on air, Kate. I was just going to say, steady now, Kate, steady. <laughs> but we did have a few adventures in Cork. and um, But Mill Street, yeah, Mill Street was one of our very first. Now, anyone will remember this as well, because we all had to decamp for quite a while uh, to Mill Street because it was so far away. And it coincided with the mobile phones coming in, which were as big as your shoe and a a battery to support it as big as your suitcase. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we had the mobile phone technology down in Mill Street and that was the very first Eurovision down there. Um, And that was that was a bit of fun as well. So were you in Mill Street? I know Mary was. I was in Mill Street indeed. Uh, And I see uh, I see Seamus Keaveney online there saying Teletext was brilliant to watch during Eurovision. What was printed was often more colourful than what was spoken on screen. (laughs) <laughs> oh, <that's right. laughs> well, that, that was Eamon went off uh, doing the cub reporter <laughs> for television. We had our little local news outlet uh, down there, but, but we had we had serious times as well. We covered the elections very seriously. The elections and, were um, huge, and there was yeah. there was a there was. Am I remembering this right? The the computers went down. The RT newsroom computers went down in the middle of an election. You are. Yeah, you are. We had a. We, we, elections, of course, don't stop. 
and elections are the most exciting thing to happen in Ireland because we have this wonderful PR system, which they should never get rid of because it's wonderful. But it does depend on computers because, you know, we, we, we had all 41 constituencies already and as the counts came in, we would put in the numbers and it's like putting in like your bank, you have to be very careful uh, that we didn't elect anybody who wasn't democratically elected or anything dangerous like that. But it was one night. And very famously, the people in the newsroom will remember because they were really dependent on it. They were moving from the blackboard and chalk over to the computer system as well. And it went down. The computer system went down. And it was, oh my heavens. So we had the radio on. And Brian Farrell was a genius, of course. And then we were taking figures from that. And they were, there was a lot of rustling of paper and what figures were accurate and what could we rely on. And we had the genius of Andrew Fanning. Do you remember Andrew? Andrew, mathematical genius, Andrew. Mathematical genius and, and also a very stable character and personality and wouldn't get giddy. So he was up in the corner doing all the transfers and, and who was going to and what we would do it. And I think it might have been about three o'clock in the morning, Katie, and you and I were putting in all of this stuff over another computer and then taking it all very seriously. We had a bank of TVs in front of us. <laughs> And I don't know what happened to me. <laughs> it must to be at three o'clock in the morning. Collapse. All I remember is you nudging me saying, Kate, Kate, stop laughing, stop laughing. You're supposed to be in charge. <laughs> I like the sinking shit. And I, I don't know if I didn't. Have I ever stopped laughing or did you join me? But anyway... I'm just glad that somebody was a grown up in the room at that stage and that, that the election <laughs> coverage <laughs> continued and we brought those results to the people of Ireland. <laughs> it did, it did. And those were awakening. They had no idea what was going on behind the scenes, but we were the first to see who was elected locally because every constituency, now I'm talking very seriously now, every constituency had its own page, its own set of pages. So the, And it was, it was very exciting. So we were able to say who got in. I don't know if the politicians remember Airtel or, or, or whatever, but it was quite state-of-the-art, wasn't it, when you think of it? Kate Kavanagh there. Katie Hannan's first boss at RTE, reminiscing about Airtel, the teletext service that's closing next week on this afternoon's Live Line. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, things I learned today. Ireland has one of the best locations in Europe, Asia or North America for dark sky tourism. It sounds ominous, but relax, it's when people come here to get a good look at the night sky without all the light pollution that is found elsewhere. Claire Byrne spoke about this with travel writer Ed Finn and Danielle Wilcox, resident astronomer and telescope operator at Blackrock Castle Observatory in Cork. Danielle, will you tell us a little bit first about dark sky tourism and why it's so important to get out and view those dark skies when we can? Oh, there are so many reasons. But uh, first of all, good morning and thank you so much for having me on. You're very welcome. Um, I, it's one of my favourite topics because I grew up in a place where I could see the sky, but I also grew up in a city. So I was in a city and I'd go to a place uh, that was darker at the weekends. And seeing that contrast, you really do appreciate the stars. And now, as we're becoming more urban and there are more lights in cities, we're losing our dark skies. So that means we're not being able to see the really faint stars and we're starting to lose the stars when we're in the cities. So getting out into the countryside, getting away from the lights of the cities, you can really see what our natural dark skies look like and it is such an amazing awe-inspiring experience to look up and see a sky full. So you just need to know the right place to go so let's stay local first Ed and will you tell us about the best spots in Ireland for dark sky tourism? 
Yeah, we have three places here, Claire. Uh, the first one was um, designated in Mayo, the Mayo Sky Park in 2014. Or, sorry, Kerry, excuse me. Kerry was the first one in 2014. Then we had Mayo in 2016. And in 2020, we had the Om Dark Sky Park up in Tyrone, which is like 3,200 acres in the Sperrin Mountains. So we have some so amazing places three places, places verified places where you verified. can go. Yeah, it started in 20. I suppose when you go back, it started... Um, they started in 20, 2001 um, with Flagstaff in Arizona, which was the first one. And there's, it, there's 22 countries now with over 160,000 square kilometres of dark skies. And I think it's really, there's a huge desire now. It's a massive growing industry. It's a massive growing uh, thing in tourism. And there's a huge desire for people to reconnect with nature again. And what do you do? Do you go to these places by yourself and look up? Yeah, well, <laughs> there's two things that are great about this, right? They're, it's free, right? The night sky is free and it's nature. And really, it's both of those things it's not like you're on escorted bus tours or you know but that is exactly it um, one of the best places that I ever went to La Palma in Spain I guess if you're in terms of the Canary Islands um, Rocco de, la, de los Muchachos there the observatory it's 2,400 metres above sky level above the clouds and they say it's the best place in the world to observe the night sky and there I mean I have pictures I got of the Milky Way and it is incredible and you really see feel your place in the car when you're there mm-hmm. and that's what you do and I remember during the day as well La Palma's gorgeous it's sunny and it's beautiful so it's at night you get the best of, of both you do indeed <laughs> yeah. and I, I think as well you know they've proved that you know light pollution has affected our circadian rhythms animals as well Koshima Island in Japan when they restricted light there and they, they shielded off the, the lights the nestling turtles came back that had left so there's a lot of actually you know, practical uh, things that happen with it as well and it really is it really is a growing growing movement all over the world So Danielle coming back again uh, to what we can see here in Ireland where in the country has taken your breath away when it comes to what you can see at night I've been out to Kerry into the Dark Sky Park there and it is absolutely beautiful and and like you mentioned coming into the winter months the weather might not be the best but when you do have a break in the weather you have really long nights you have more opportunity to get out and actually take a look up at the stars and even if you can't get that far out I've been out to West Cork on a really nice night and it is just absolutely beautiful to see the, the sky like that so I recommend um, as, as soon as you get outside of the city you're going to start to see more stars the farther you go out into a darker area, the more stars you're going to see and, and carries off actually and, the best. And further afield then, beyond Ireland, if we want to take this this far, where would you be recommending or where have you been that you've enjoyed? Well, I, I've had a few different locations. Um, I did a bit of sailing. So I was sailing on a, a boat in Greece and being in the middle of uh, the water at night is unbelievable because then you have horizon to horizon. You don't have any trees or buildings in your way. So you just have a real full sky of stars. But um, getting out into a desert, if you're able to ever visit a desert, when you have really dry atmosphere, you have unbelievable views of the night sky. So that's really what you want. Something dry, something cool uh, and a good uh, winter night is 
best because then, like you said, you get the more hours of longer nights, long, more hours of darkness. Ed, you had an experience as well out on the open seas, I didn't did, you? Yeah, the Queen Mary is sailing from Southampton to New York in the middle <laughs> of the Atlantic. Very glamorous. Yeah, it was, yeah. But uh, incredible. I mean, really, I mean, you have you have complete, you're in, in the middle of nowhere and, you know, it was amazing what, what, what I saw there. You look up. Now, friends of mine recently were on a river cruise, Claire, from Budapest to Nuremberg and they went through a dark sky area and they were lying on the top of their river cruise and they, they were they were saying how amazing it was that they saw stars that you just don't see and I think that is really the key to it it's when you experience it I mean I was in Costa Rica as well which was incredible you know you have the most beautiful tropical rainforest there but the skies again are dark at night time and you Ed, ju- Ed we all want your life now you realise that the more you talk the more we want to live your life The Sperrins is, is the Sperrins I think was one of the best places I saw a partial eclipse up there as well they've done a they've got the observatory there now as well which is really amazing the Dava Forest you can mountain bike but for kids it's great as well um, and for Halloween now it's a great time for sky watch you know for stargazing and they do loads of exciting things there so it doesn't have to be as exotic as, as, as exotic but still we like to hear about it um, Danielle will you give us some tips on getting out there with children to check the sky because we need to know what we're looking for so where do we find all that information yeah, so um, a few things to, to take into consideration is um, the, the winters are better because then you don't have to be out super late at night with your children either. So you don't have to be well past bedtime to see a few stars. You can go out even at like 8 o'clock and you'd already have some dark skies. So um, the other thing to, to keep in mind is your your moon cycle because I went out uh, to carry one time Super excited for a nice dark weekend, completely forgot to look at what phase the moon was in. And of course, it happened to be a full moon. So I basically didn't see any stars that weekend, just a few bright ones. Uh, so you want a new moon. You want no moon in the sky, and then you'll be able to see the, the maximum number of stars in your night sky. So just something to keep in mind. And then also the weather. Make sure you have no clouds available, too. And, equi- uh, and so, equip- yeah. equipment wise, Danielle, what do we need? You know, if you've got a telescope, fantastic, but you don't need to have a telescope. Even if you have a pair of binoculars, you'd be surprised what you can see with just a pair of of regular binoculars. And we have some planets visible in the sky as well. So even um, in the early evening now, we have Saturn and Jupiter visible in your southern sky. So if you've never used a a telescope or a pair of binoculars, now's a great time to get out there. And there's some great apps, too, that you can put on your phone and they'll help you guide through the night sky to figure out which point of light you're looking at is a planet or a star. That's Danielle Wilcox from Blackrock Castle Observatory in Cork, who, along with travel writer Ed Finn, was talking about dark sky tourism on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirathon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. Until the next time, Thank you for listening and good luck.